This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Book of Lamentations, chapter 2. It's found on page 686 in the Bibles in your rows, if you'd like to turn there and follow along as I read. Lamentations 2. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe, and he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her kings and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say to you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. 
Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt dealt thus. Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. There's a lot more of you here than we're at nine o'clock. How many of y'all intended to come to the nine o'clock? And just, I'm just kidding. Not going to make you confess. My name is Brian, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, a few years ago, I shared this uh, little video clip of our youngest daughter, Quinn, lamenting, uh, and I felt like it was worth dusting it off. I subtitled it so you can understand what she's saying here. Check us out. When was the last time you had a hamburger? I don't know. I don't even remember. <laughs> what do you like so much about them? Now, that's just like 45 seconds that goes on for several minutes uh, in the video. And it's, it's funny, right? It's funny because it's kind of ridiculous. First of all, there's no ham in hamburgers. I'm not sure where she got that. Second, it's a hamburger, right? Not a big deal in the grand scheme of things. And yet there is something really endearing uh, about this, isn't there? For some context at the time, uh, we were fostering. We had a couple other kiddos with us. Quinn was sharing her room with her foster sister and was the youngest of the five kids in the house. And honestly, she was just kind of lost in the shuffle. Uh, she honestly had reason to feel sorrow, and it just spilled out as being about hamburgers. Knowing the context gives us a lot more compassion toward her, and I kind of wish I had the gall to lament like that honestly recognize the pain and the grief that I'm lugging around and just pour it out. 
In our community group this past week, we were contrasting, complaining, and lamenting. Hopefully you had a chance to do the same in your group. And we wrestled with this for some time, and Quinn's hamburger lament came to mind because she's not complaining, really. Uh, that's a genuine from the guts crying out with sorrow, uh, as silly as it might be. And we were thinking, we were, you know, maybe what's the difference between complaining and lamenting? And we said maybe complaint is shallow and uh, has some entitlement involved there, while lamentation is genuine um, and comes from our guts. But really, you know, a complaint is even welcomed by God. You know, we sing in one of our songs, can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf to our complaint. As Pastor Mike laid out for us last week, a lament is a passionate, honest expression of grief or sorrow. And God can handle our lamentation. As one commentator put it, God's chest is big enough for us to pound on. So that's our hope for this series, that we can grow in our honest appraisal of what's grieving us and causing us pain and sorrow, and that we can learn to pour that out to God in prayer. So this morning, We come to Lamentations 2, where the author is reckoning with something immensely more disturbing than not getting a hamburger recently. Lamentations 2 is just brutal. We're going to take a look at how the poet finds the people of God down and out, and then we'll look at how to reckon with approaching the unapproachable God, and then we'll take a look at what difference Jesus makes to the whole mess. So what we have here in Lamentations 2 is a graphic eyewitness account of the utter destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. As Pastor Mike mentioned last week, this book of Lamentations is kind of a memorial to the pain and suffering of the people of God in the wake of the fall of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. Throughout this chapter, we see the poet and the people of God are down. Did you catch that as Katie read it? How many times there were words about being down? Verse 1, the daughter of Zion is under a cloud. God has cast them down. Verse 2, the Lord has broken down the strongholds. He's brought down the kingdom and its rulers. Verses 3 and 4, God has cut down the might of Israel. He's burned like a consuming fire. Verse 5, the Lord laid in ruins the strongholds of Jerusalem. Verse 6, God has laid waste and laid in ruins. And on and on, God destroys. The gates are sunken into the ground. The people sit on the ground. God's thrown down his people. There's talk of dust and rubble and poverty and pain. The people of God are down. The city has been destroyed. The gates, the buildings, the palace, the temple, all of it, rubble. How did they end up so far down? the absolute leveling of their lives in society, government, and temple aren't brutal enough, what may be most astounding and painful about this, and the poet makes this abundantly clear, God did this. God did it. He was the one who caused their destruction. Yes, the Babylonian army sacked the city, but God was the one who let it happen. God made it happen. Did you catch that as we read it? commentator Kathleen O'Connor summarizes, she said, God be clouds, God casts down, God is the one who does not remember, God swallows up, does not spare, throws down in rage, God brings to the ground, God cuts down, brings back his hand, God burns, bends his bow, kills all, pours out rage, God is the agent over and over, the Lord did this, the Lord did it. The people of God are down and out. Jerusalem is completely destroyed 
They're out of God's favor, out of relationship with him, out of protection. But why? Why did this happen? When horrible things happen, like the invasion of a city or a country and the destruction of a nation or a people, we are all left asking why. And to know why this happened, we need to know two things. First, we need to know about how God's covenant with his people was supposed to work. And two, we need to understand a bit about God's wrath. First of all, God's covenant. If we go all the way back to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we see God gathering a special people for himself. God sets Abraham aside and said that he will be blessed to be a blessing to others and ultimately to the whole earth. God makes what's called a covenant with Abraham. Now, we don't use the word covenant much these days. The idea is probably most familiar to us in terms of marriage. That is, we recognize that the relationship of marriage is different than, say, our relationship with, like our barista at our coffee shop. No offense to our baristas. Right? But in marriage, we say that we will stick together in good times or bad times, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, richer or poorer, until we are parted by death. We go to our favorite coffee shop until we don't want to anymore. Right? We aren't in a covenant with them. So God has this covenant, marriage level or more relationship with his people till death do us part. Evidence of God's covenant relationship with his people was shown in the Exodus when God heard the cry of his people and used Moses to lead the people out of slavery. And then God gave the law, the Ten Commandments, as a kind of baseline rule for the covenant. Then there were the kings, King David as the paragon. God establishing a people with a king and a government, a civil order, and a temple to worship in. But if you're familiar with the story, things unravel. The kings often did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Generation after generation, things getting worse and worse. The people more and more disobedient and broken and wicked. Until it culminates here in the Babylonians, destroying the city and the palace and the temple and all the stuff that we're reading about here in the book of Lamentations. But why did God do this? Isn't he supposed to keep the covenant? To love God's people with a a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever loves, the Jesus storybook Bible says. Well, it might feel a bit confusing, right? Because we read the refrain over and over again in the Old Testament that God is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Where's that steadfast love and faithfulness now, God? But notice, the Bible says God is slow to anger. Not that he never angers. He's ridiculously patient, slow to anger, but he does get angry. And what we see here being lamented is the consequence of breaking the covenant God made with his people. The covenant has curses as well as promises. Back in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 27 and 28, we won't turn there now, but you can go back and check it out later if you want. We read about how Israel had been warned from the very beginning of their journey with God, the consequences of persistent covenant rebellion, that they would be unthinkably awful because they would be inflicted by the hands of the cruelest and most powerful human oppressors you could imagine, Babylonians. So one commentator put it, Babylonians will do what Babylonians will do. So God has this covenant with his people. He's been exceedingly patient and steadfast in his love for generations and generations. But finally, it's too much. And as the poet says a few times in this passage, we've come to the day of God's anger. God's anger, the wrath of God. It's not a fun subject. 
The poet talks a lot about the anger of the Lord here in Lamentations 2. He uses words like God's fury and indignation and wrath. He even says several times that God is like an enemy to them. It's fun stuff, I know. But it's important to understand because the wrath of God is a biblical concept. Peter Jensen, who's the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney, said it this way. He said, God's wrath is his holy response to our sin. It is a righteous anger at unrighteous behavior, indeed at unrighteous beings. It is completely just. Indeed, it is an expression of love since it takes us with utmost seriousness and refuses to accede that we are like insects, not responsible for our actions. The wrath of God is one of the foundations of the whole moral and spiritual order. God's wrath is his taking sin seriously. That is, sin is so serious, it cuts us out of relationship with God. The people were down and the people were out. Dorothy Sayers describes sin as a deep interior dislocation of the soul. A deep interior dislocation of the soul. The Bible says sin is separation from God. Death. We see here in Lamentations what happens when sin runs rampant. God cannot, will not tolerate sin. The sin causes a dislocation between God and his people. The poet is clear. God is the one doling out the judgment here using the Babylonians. But what's the real punishment? It's not even the destruction of the city and the palace and the temple. It's that they're out. God essentially leaves them, leaves them to get what they think they want, what they deserve. We see this in Romans 1, this expression where Paul says God gives people up to their various sins. He says it several times. He gives them up, leaves them alone to do what they think they want and wallow in their sin. C.S. Lewis has this great line. This is my paraphrase of it. He says, there are two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, fine, have it your way. The wrath of God here is manifested in God leaving the people alone saying, fine, have it your way. Letting the people spiral out of control to the natural consequence of calamity and devastation. They are down and they are out. And we might be thinking, man, those Israelites, they're bad. Thank God we're not like them. But lest we get too proud wagging our fingers at the Israelites here and find ourselves nodding in agreement with God that they got what they deserved, we need to realize that their condition is the human condition. That is, in ourselves, we are just like them. Ephesians 2 says that in our natural state, we're dead in our sins. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In Romans, Paul says death came through sin, and, and so death spread to all of us because all of us sin, and that makes us God's enemies. It's in Romans 5. So when the poet says God is like an enemy, we get that, right? Because that's how we all are, by nature, children of wrath, dead, God's enemies. So what happens when we don't reckon with and understand the wrath and anger of God? Well, Richard Niebuhr famously quipped about a toothless pseudo-gospel taking hold in the Western church in the 20th century. He says, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. What happens without understanding of the wrath of God? Well, we have nothing to be saved from. We don't understand the cross. What's the point? We can't begin to grasp what Jesus did. 
people here in Lamentations 2 are down, but they are also out, out of favor with God, out of relationship with God, out of God's blessing, out of God's care. They are down and they are out. I suspect that you know what it feels like to be down from the ordinary stuff that gets us down, bad days, relationship woes, past pains, unhappiness at work or home, financial shortfalls, inflation, the fact that we didn't see the sun for like two months in January and February here in Cincinnati. Or maybe you're down because of some of the big stuff, like a significant job loss, a terrible medical diagnosis, a broken marriage relationship, chronic pain, estrangement from parents or siblings, addiction, betrayal, death. A number of us certainly find ourselves down right here and right now this morning. I suspect that you probably also know what it's like to feel out of relationship with the Lord and to feel the dislocation of the soul. In the 16th century, St. John of the Cross called it the dark night of the soul. Could be because of disobedience. Maybe you're so entangled and weighed down by some sin that you can't imagine getting out of it or can't imagine God welcoming you into the kingdom. Maybe you don't even believe in God and you find yourself teeing off at this God that you don't even think exists, cussing in the shower like Pastor Mike. Maybe you've just wandered away from God and he just feels far off. If you are down or if you are out, the poet gets you. Lamentations is for you. It's it's a mercy that this book is in the Bible. It's tough stuff, but it's so, so good and necessary for us, especially when we find ourselves down and out. So the poet has screamed out all the ways that the people are down and out, naming the pain and the suffering, yelling at God. They are as down and as out as you could possibly imagine. So where in the world do you go from here? Interestingly, in verse 13, the poet addresses Lady Zion, who if we were here last week, you might remember, is the main character in chapter 1. And we might say that the poet is telling her to approach the unapproachable, to cry out to God. But we might immediately ask, but why would she approach the one who was the cause or source of the hurt and the pain and the destruction. That is, as commentator Chris Wright puts it, the thing seems so impossible, indeed almost monstrously inappropriate, telling Lady Zion to pray to the Lord. Why should the victim plead with the abuser himself for justice? Reminds me of a great quote from Annie Dillard critiquing our easy chumminess with the almighty God of the universe. She writes this, she says, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? Churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. We, like Lady Zion, get together seeking to approach the unapproachable. We're like Lady Zion, stuck in a caught a dilemma having to seek rescue from the only one who can save us but who is by nature our enemy and by many accounts seems pretty dangerous if god allowed all that to happen can he be trusted 
I just started reading a, um, the book Prayer in the Night by Tish Harrison Warren. It's a great read to go along with a series of sermons. I think there's some copies out in the commons if you want to pick one up. And she writes this. She says, of course, God does keep many bad things from happening to us. We don't know all the unnoticed ways we've been spared some misery, the accidents we weren't in, the injuries we just avoided, the destructive relationships we never began, the diseases our white blood cells silently snuffed from our bodies unbeknownst to us. But God does not keep all bad things from happening to us. He cannot be trusted to do that because he never made that promise. Doing so is apparently not his job God is good and powerful and terrible things regularly happen in this world. There's the tension. God is good and powerful and terrible things happen. We are God's enemy, children of wrath by nature, and yet he is our only hope and rescue. God is unapproachable, and yet we must approach him to have him save us. It's a bit like the famous interaction between the Pevensey children and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you've been around here for any amount of time, you'll know it. It's on our greatest hits record. The Beavers say this, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Well, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Our God, not safe, but good. So how does the poet here tell us to approach the unapproachable? How do we begin to brave these dangerous waters? Well, I see at least several ways that we can approach the unapproachable here. And first, the poet tells us to arise, cry out in the night. We might say, get up and say something. In Tish Warren's book, again, she talks about the real visceral fear that can come from darkness. It's often at night that we battle our personal demons, isn't it? Maybe we can't sleep, so we toss and turn. Maybe we're tempted with whatever vice it is that has its hooks in us, whether that's eating too much ice cream or taking whatever substance we think we need, watching just one more episode of whatever we happen to be binging, looking at what we ought not to be looking at on the computer or being out at someone's house or out somewhere when we should be home. The poet says, cry out in the night. The night is exactly the time to be crying out in prayer. Secondly, the poet says, pour out your heart like water. It's again in verse 19. You know, when I was in high school, I was home alone with my brothers, and we were in the basement, which is where we almost always were. That's where our TV was, and the good stereo was, and the drum set, and the guitar amps, and all that stuff. And my folks were out, and um, we were down there, and all of a sudden, a massive, and I mean massive torrential downpour of water started pouring in through the basement ceiling. We had no idea what was happening. Uh, all we could do to think was get these big garbage cans and like fill them up and then dump them down the drain in the basement um, so it wouldn't completely flood the basement. So apparently over the years, um, the area under the front concrete stoop had washed out and essentially made a giant like cistern that decided that night was going to break through the foundation and come pouring into the basement and flood the basement all while our parents weren't home. But something like that is like what the 
the poet is describing here that we ought to do in prayer. Like pour out our heart like water, like a spring or a waterfall, torrential flow just coming out, just letting it flow, letting it rip. Cry out in the night, pour out your heart like water. Thirdly, the poet tells us to lift our hands. Yes, lift your hands. You're allowed to put your hands up if you want. When you're singing, when you're praying, scandalous, I know. But why does the Bible tell us to lift our hands when we pray or we sing? Why lift our hands in worship? Well, it's a sign of receiving, right? Like opening your arms and putting your face up in the air like they do in the movies when it's raining, you know, like, like this thing. You know, or like in a, a sign of submission, like, you know, stick them up, you know, when you put your hands up. You know, or lifting up our hands is a sign of needing help, like a child reaching up to their parent. Lifting up our hands is a good and right way to pray and worship the Lord. You don't have to, but you can feel free to. And then fourthly, the poet says for the Lady Zion to say, look, O Lord, and see. That is, lay out what's going on and ask God to look and see. I remember when our girls were little and they wanted my attention, they would take their hands and press my cheeks and like turn my face to look at them. And that's what this is, is like grabbing God's face and asking him to pay attention. It's a bit like when Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat in the storm and the disciples were panicked and they shook him and woke him and said, don't you even care that we are perishing? It's maybe not the best way of saying it, but that's what we're doing. We say, look, Lord, see what's going on. So we cry out in the night, pour out our heart like water, lift up our hands, ask God to look and see, ask for God's attention. No, we could probably stop here because in Lamentations 2, there's no answer given by God or the poet. So the questions, they're just left hanging in the air, uncomfortable, stretching. And that's oftentimes how we find ourselves in life. No answers, just left hanging there doesn't present any easy answers. And there's not really even any requests specifically. The poet and the Lady Zion are just throwing their situation at the Lord's feet. So we could stop here, just down and out, reckoning with the danger of approaching the unapproachable. But that leaves us unable to approach the Lord with confidence. We might be thinking that we've done something so bad or we haven't done something good enough and God is going to pour out his wrath on us like he did on Jerusalem. So we can't stop here because we're going to come to the table in a few minutes, the invitation of the one who allows us to approach God's throne of grace with confidence and not with terror. We can cry out and pour out our hearts like water, not afraid that God will punish, but we can come confident and secure. In a song that we sing around here, we sing, On That Cross... As Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. We sing, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. In Jesus, the wrath of God is satisfied. See, God's wrath doesn't come out occasionally and intensely, like it did before Jesus, like it did on Jerusalem in 587 BC and on the people of God at other times in the Old Testament. 
God's wrath against sin is still as intense as it ever was, but now we have a mediator. If God's wrath is like floodwaters, Jesus acts as a dam holding back the water. You can read about that in Romans 1 and 2. Paul writes, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, like water behind a dam. The wrath of God will be poured out. It will be poured out on someone. Either you are going to take it or Jesus can take it for you. In the meantime, God is giving everyone ample time to come to Christ and find relief. God is even more patient than he's ever been, if that's possible. Not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to know Jesus and experience eternal life. Jesus is the dam holding back the wrath of God from being poured out until the last day. And God's wrath is satisfied for those who are in Christ. Because God's wrath was poured out on Jesus for all who repent and believe in him. Peter Jensen, again, says, the wrath of God is as real as your sin. The only thing which can satisfy the wrath of God is a satisfaction paid for your sin provided by God himself. Jesus has done this by dying for you on the cross, saving you from the wrath to come. Whether we like it or not, that is the heart of the gospel. Turn the wrath of God into something else or ignore it, And you will not have Christianity, but some other religious lookalike. That is our choice. Flee the wrath of God. Come to Jesus and find relief. For the wrath of God is satisfied for you on that cross. As we prepare to come to the table to feast on Jesus, we're going to take a few minutes, a few moments of quiet to pray, to lament. Tish Warren says, it's better to rage at the creator than to smolder in polite devotion. So take this time to rage at the creator, approaching the throne of grace boldly because of Jesus. So over these weeks, we're going to watch our prayers grow and we're going to raise them up. As we're challenged here in Lamentations, we're going to arise and cry out, pour out our hearts like water before the presence of the Lord, lift our hands to him, ask God to look and see. We're going to honestly approach the throne of grace with confidence with our pain. So you can grab one of these tags there throughout your rows there. Took a few minutes to write down prayer of lament, prayer for mercy, whatever you need to do, and then bring it up with you and drop it in one of the baskets here when you come for communion. And then we'll hang it up this week and we'll watch our prayers grow as a sign of our prayers together and God hearing us. You know, or during this time, you can pray silently, write in a journal or the jacket of your Bible or whatever. In your bulletin, there's a little cheat sheet to help you with writing a prayer of lament, if that's helpful. Let me give the commentator Kathleen O'Connor the last word as a primer for our time of prayer, and then we'll pray. O'Connor says this, expression of pain is essential to prayer. It's that simple and that difficult. By telling the truth of its world to God, lamentations becomes a school for prayer. Speaking truth to God can seem unthinkable because God already knows, or because God may not care, or because God appears to be the cause of the trouble in the first place. But as in any relationship, not speaking truth to God causes a dwindling of mutuality and expansion of anger, resentment, and alienation. O'Connor says, pray anyway. So let's take a few moments of silence to pray, write your prayers as we prepare to come to the table. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. 
Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.